0: Okay, so things I like to read in the summer are a little fun, a little popcorny, bubblegummy, slide the slide, ride the ride. Uh, yeah, and I, I'm gonna recommend a quick trio, trio of books um, that all center around the theme of interspecies love, interspecies trips, flings, emotional relationships.
1: listeners dukes here uh and i'm really excited to get to this episode this is the third and final in our summer reading series and in this one chris and i are each going to make a summer reading recommendation for you definitely some courtship behavior going on with these two lizards oh yeah well yeah kind of on theme for the episode um Anyway, I'm excited to introduce the third in our summer reading series. In this one, Chris and I are each going to share a recommendation for a summer read, and we get a whole bunch of recommendations from you, our listeners. It's going to be great. So just a few quick notes before we get started. One is that Chris was remote. He didn't have access to his recording setup, so we just had to use the Zoom recording. But you'll you'll understand him just fine, and you'll get used to it. Uh, second, the pitcher whose name I pronounce in several different ways in this episode, um, in an attempt to pronounce his name correctly. Um, well, that pitcher, I didn't get his name correct any of those times. It's pronounced Stephen Shock. Stephen Shock. Also, I seem to have a problem with pitcher names in this episode more broadly. Uh, Greg Maddox, um... I refer to him as Doug Maddox several times. I don't know why other than I think it's a sign of my aging brain and a sign of things to come, which I'm not super happy about, but there it is. I'm still pretty sharp. Um, Yeah, I think that's everything you need to know. It is uh, the first day of summer here in LA and it is glorious. And by the time you hear it, it will definitely be summer, so Sit back and enjoy some summer reading recommendations from Upper Middle Brow. Okay. The number of times I have to re-sign into Zoom is extraordinarily high. Zoom yes. seems to kick us off.
2: Yeah. As soon as I open one computer, it instantly logs me out of other the other devices. Like So I get like, it's like if I open my laptop at home, the desktop is like, you're out. And then right. I get, like, That's yeah, notifications on the phone, too. And, yeah, it's just, uh, it's weird. Zoom seems to, it's like, um, it's like, uh, they're sort of like stormtrooper sentries. They're, like, incredibly difficult to deal with in, like, a very narrow kind of uh, band of, um, of uh, adversity. Mm. But then, like, incredibly permeable for any other kind of uh, thing. Hmm. So like Zoom will sign you out all the time, but apparently you know people can log into your meetings and drop penises on your whiteboards.
1: Well, I mean, I think that was often those meetings did not have passwords. I mean, they, you know that there's a certain That's amount true. there's a certain amount of uh, the penis and whiteboard era. Hopefully, is largely <laughs> past past yeah. us.
2: It's like a real like eight month period. Of yeah, like- yeah, 2020.
1: <laughs> that was uh, 2020. Spring they had sort of figured it out by the fall It's kind of what our friend Justin's book is going to be about Although we don't we don't talk about that Specific problem You don't talk soon. about
2: penises and whiteboards in the book
1: no, Not that I recall and I, I, yeah. I Last week read through every single word So nice. uh, I think I think I would Know uh, so I had an idea of rather Than a ramble of starting this one with A quiz kind of inspired do by it. My pick are you alright with that so The question is yes. what Do Tina Faye Edgar Allan Poe, Stephen Scotch, or Stephen Scoach, or Stephen Shosh—it's the same person. I'm just—I'm just hedging my bets when it comes to pronunciation. Okay. And Jesse Dukes all have in common.
2: Tina Fey, Stephen Schoch, Edgar Allan Poe, and Jesse Dukes. Yes. Um, okay. First random guest birthday nope okay uh let's see next random guess uh birthplace
1: nope but mm. but 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 that's good that's good thinking you know you're okay. you're in the right genre uh,
2: place of education
1: yes yes okay. uh tina fey edgar Allan poe Stephen Scotch and Jesse Dukes all attended the University of Virginia, uh, Stephen being the current senior closer uh, for their baseball team, which is in the World Series of Baseball. And though I will also say, and I'm going to demonstrate to you in the, uh, the, the truth of this in just a second, another thing they have in common is they're all fucking hilarious. Um,
2: <laughs> Very true. Edgar Allan
1: Poe, actually, you may not... Obviously, Tina Fey is hilarious. Any listener to this podcast knows that... You know, apart from my modesty, uh, humor is probably my greatest quality. Um, Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> Sorry, I'll let you laugh at that hilarious well, yeah, joke no, for a moment.
2: I'm to laugh at that and then comment about it. That's like that's like one of the most classic like humor setups of all time. I just love that. The like I don't even know what it's called, but like it's like the pornography thing. Like I know that joke setup when I see it. Yeah. Um, and uh, I really wish I, I need like a. I need like a joke dictionary or a joke encyclopedia that will allow me to define those terms effectively.
1: You know, I've been wanting to, you know what, this would be a good time for me to write this book proposal. I've been wanting to write a book. Mm. That's just what is funny. That that explores both classic Mm. joke structures, the history of comedy, but also the biological evolutionary history of laughing and laughter and Mm. why we do it. I have a hypothesis that it is, is the sound we make when fear is leaving our body. You know, we've decided, oh, we're not gonna fight. We're, Mm -hmm. this is, you know, so like when apes start laughing, that means like, oh, something funny happened, the tension's resolved, we're not fighting right now. Whoo, what a relief. Um, which is also, I think why we sometimes nervously laugh, even when nothing funny has happened, cause you're, you're trying mm-hmm. to let some of that fear out, <laughs> yeah. um, makes sense.
2: my, um, my, my reaction to getting a chiropractic adjustment is to burst into like wild laughter. Mm. Um, and, uh, and usually I think it's because like, there is something really unsettling about getting, uh, a chiropractic adjustment. Um, but, uh, yeah, we should talk more about humor. Uh, we're already departing the realms of your quiz. Uh, well, but I mean, We're still all, in orbit. We're still in orbit. Or so University of Virginia, all four fucking hilarious. Yeah, um, I indeed. was trying to insert a joke about the University of Virginia Cavaliers being presently in the World Series, uh, even though... The true World Series of baseball doesn't happen until November. I believe you were referring to the College World Series.
1: It is. It is branded as the, quote, College World Series, which is sort of a double misnomer, if you think about it, because the World Series World Series isn't really the World Series. But the College World Series is definitely not the World Series. But, you know, if they were going to rebrand, they could call it, like, the Universe Series or something. There's no mm-hmm. rules about these things. You can call whatever there series. There aren't.
2: Yes, yeah. no. This is why you get this, like, spiraling number of European club soccer competitions. Like, right. the Europa Conference League final, which you're like, what the hell does that mean?
1: Wasn't there one, what was the, you were joking with me, and you, there was one that's just called, like, the League League or something like that? or the. Uh,
2: yes, the, uh, the Carabao Cup which yeah. like everybody is like, what is the Carabao Cup? Uh, and so the men in Blazers now refer to it as the Cupity Cup Cup.
1: Cupity cup cup right indeed so similar spirit here so I'm gonna play you an interview if the sound sharing feature works and I really hope it does because if not we're buggered um, uh-huh. b- because I'm gonna do more <laughs> of that of uh, Steven Scouche giving a post game interview after he saved a game that basically kept UVA in the World Series of Baseball against Duke so let's try let's make sure I can share the screen share okay you are you seeing my Reaper
2: I am seeing your Reaper.
1: All right, so here is, Mr. Scoch, here is Mr. Scotch. Here is Mr. Scotch. Here's Mr. Shosh. Here's Steven. Uh, this is, <laughs> and is it the, for visual, he's standing on the pitcher's mound and he's got a headset, and then the broadcasters are talking to him, and then the camera long lens is focused on him. So he's kind of like got this kind of shit eating grin throughout this interview, and he's kind of looking up at the broadcast booth, but nobody's sticking a mic in his face. So here it goes.
3: You know you walk into a stadium 8,000 people they all want you to lose but as long as you got your 26 guys ready to kick ass or kick butt um <laughs> you're gonna be all right sorry i sweared i shouldn't have no sweared. you're good man Let, let's go back to that last inning ninth inning what are the emotions like entering that inning well the emotions are you go in win i heard a fan offer free dipping dots if i blew it which the price of dipping dots with inflation is just unreal. So, for a brief moment, I was like, damn, dipping dots sound good. But also, I thought in the back of my head, we win today, we win tomorrow, or tonight. We're going to be here another day. That's more per diem. So, that means I can buy my own dipping dots and be a winner. <laughs> so, it's like, you know, I'm going to go out there, I'm going to attack. And, Steve, it's really easy pitching when you got a defense like ours, I tell you. It's so easy when, when they're yeah. behind you. As long as you keep it in the yard, you got a chance, which is pretty cool. (laughs) Does anything make you nervous? Caves. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Nothing really. I mean, I don't see any caves out here.
2: I don't see any caves out here as <laughs> he, is the picture of a major university division one baseball program. He I goes really on to
1: talk about the sort of landscape in, in which you would find caves and which landscapes you don't find. caves. This goes on for that was only about a third of it right there. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I gave you I, I mean, I think my favorite moment is the, you know, if we win today, uh, that's another per diem. I can buy my own Dippin' Dots and be a winner, which is yeah. logical and hilarious.
2: You know, it, it makes me it reminds me that like baseball interviews are the best interviews um, that like because I think baseball is such an odd sport and like really um, sort of filches like the odder parts of the American um, society into like into it. Um, this is why you get such amazing like names in baseball. Um, but it's just their baseball players are so different from any other kind of athlete out there.
1: I I was going to say, I think it is among team sports the jock-nerdiest sport, at least in the American context. I mean, sure, there are some meathead, left-handed, six-seven relief pitchers out there who are dumb as a post. But um, And this guy has a little bit of that affect, too, but he's like the smartest uh-huh. version of that, you know, that you could yeah. ever imagine in a clever... But there's something inherently nerdy about baseball, I think, too. I think it has something about the pace and that you can track it with a box score and that, you know, the way statistics are kept. Um, it is very... It's a very nerd-friendly sport, Mm -hmm. and one form of nerd is the wag, you know, the humorist. Um, And so I think there's a lot of overlap. I also think that there is also... I could be wrong about this. I'm just positing, though, that there's actually more to talk about in baseball interviews because, you know, like base basketball, it's sort of like the coach tells you what to do. You either do it or you don't. Um, <laughs> and baseball, to me, seems to have more infinite permutations of tactics and strategies. Now, I may be wrong about that. If I was a basketball coach, I might entirely disagree. But, you know, just like I love going to a baseball game and just like watching the third baseman shift for yeah. different batters, you know,
2: which is now illegal. Oh, really? Have oh they can't they can't
1: shift across you can only put so many people on one side of the base you can't do a but they can still they'll still shift side shift to side front and back man. and stuff yes. like that but you can't do yeah, you yeah.
2: can't play like the stand like the real aggressive like let's take all of our infielders and park them between like first and where the yeah. shortstop would stand apparently that is now that is no longer legal sad room um, i disagree with it of, like yeah, speeding things up, I think you're right. I think that all of our sports that have more play stoppages in them uh, tend to be a more tactical game because, mm. like, of course, like then the coach can like spend more time structuring what's going to go on. Like, American football is a great example. Yeah. Uh, rugby also would yeah. be a, a good example because there are a lot of like play stoppages where you can kind of reset things. Basketball, less so. I yeah. think football... Uh, uh, European football, soccer, uh, same thing. Like you have to get your tactical know-how and understanding sort of set in practice. It's in practice. Like there has to be a lot more of like the players really know what's like, how they're going to improvise basically.
1: Yeah. I wonder, I mean, I also think with baseball you have play stoppage. So the managers and the various coaches batting, pitching base coaches can assert themselves. But I also, you have nine players on the field who also and then you have base runners who are also making tactical decisions all the time. I mean, one of my favorite plays I ever saw in baseball, I think it was I think it was the 2004 World Series
2: um, um, which the Red Sox won, uh, yes. sweeping the St. Louis Cardinals in four games, uh, winning uh, in St. Louis at the very end. I just have to say, yes, um, contractually it, obliged as a resident of New England <laughs> to bring
1: a great up. moment in our town's history. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, I believe also they defeated the uh, Yankees in the playoffs, and that was much more of a nail biter. And I believe it was during that series that I saw some Red Sox hit a deep drive, probably off the green monster, and Hideki Mm -hmm. Matsui was the Mm -hmm. Yankees' left fielder. There was a runner on second. He saw the ball, immediately glocked that it was going to hit the monster, but he played it like he was going to catch it in order to hold the runner on second until Ah, the last moment.
2: Very, very clever.
1: And yes. and so he kept he kept the the runner from scoring on a double, basically. I mean he advanced to third, but not um
2: Which is amazing.
1: It's amazing <laughs> and it's incredibly heads up and you know and he you know, in the replay, you see him decide on that strategy within three tenths of a second of the ball leaving the minute faster than I mean yeah. he knows as soon as the contact's made, he knows he's not gonna get it and he knows he's gonna act like he's going to get it. And then even when he turns, it's too late for the base runner too. And it, yeah. I mean, it's just, there's so many permutations to that. And, and uh, yeah, anyway, we're not here to talk about baseball, but that is a preview of my summer reading recommendation that I'm going to give later <laughs> in the episode. Um, but what I actually was hoping we could start with, with some of the voicemails that we got uh, a couple of the voicemails. Uh, yeah. Awesome. So uh, sharing again, share sound. Okay. So... Here is our first listener audio memo recommendation. You'll recognize this.
4: Hi, I'm Justin, friend of the show. I'm a teacher, I'm an educator. So summers are a big deal for me because I usually have summers off. Um, And for the last few summers, I've been binging on N.K. Jemisin's uh, Science Fiction and Fantasy Speculative Fiction, which I can't recommend enough. She is an incredible World Builder, uh, she, the, the three series that I've really spent time with are her Inheritance series about a world in which people have enslaved their gods, uh, the Fifth Season series, which uh, the Upper Middle Brow guys are talking about where climate change is transforming society and forcing people to live in new ways, and then uh, the, the duopoly, the Killing Moon duopoly where um, people have learned to harvest the energy of dreams. Uh, All of her series are incredibly captivating. They're deep, they're rich, Uh, they're uh, really fun to read. Um, One of my favorite memories is being uh, windbound on a little island on the coast of Maine um, and uh, spending the night uh, with storms blowing overhead, um, reading N.K. Jemisin's Inheritance Trilogy through the night. Nice.
2: Yeah, you know, I I grabbed the next two books of the Broken Earth trilogy because I just thought the fifth season was just so good, and I can't wait to to jump into the next two of them.
1: Which we have we have recorded episodes about that the listener will not have heard just yet.
2: <laughs> totally, um,
1: but it was the last book we talked about. But we're gonna stick. I think we're gonna stick this episode before. Uh, yeah, we hear those.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think just listening to Justin's sort of recap and his little like, like brief. Um, summary of her other work, I think the thing that strikes me is just the, uh, the wild inventiveness of, uh, of her imagination and that like, wow, I mean, harnessing the power of dreams and one and, uh, like, like wild seismology of the broken earth trilogy. Um, I, I just, you know, really, she really allows herself to range all over the place in such a way that I think is important for any writer. Um, Yeah, it's a good lesson to all of us to keep our, you know, keep our keep our minds open about the places that we want to take our readers.
1: Yeah, I mean, also this in all of them, you're there's sort of a a allegory about where does the sort of energy source of our existence Mm -hmm. come from? too, um, sort of fascination with that, you know, it's, it's a kind of like, what is the foundation of what we might call the economy, and also what we might call the systems and structures. The other thing that really strikes me about Justin's voicemail that I love, I just love the memory of reading a book all night when you're windbound in a tent, you know, and the way in which when you're on a trip, which a lot, you know, a lot of us travel in the summer, how having the right book on the trip can make a huge difference, you know, and it can also bring you through some challenging moments like i remember uh being in tunisia a few years ago and i was on this train and it was like 100 degrees outside and the train's air conditioning wasn't working no it was a bus <laughs> and it the air conditioning wasn't working or maybe it was working but it wasn't keeping up so and there were like 60 people on the bus and it was sweaty and it was dusty outside and it was just and i um i had actually had an audio book of um Riemde, the Neil Stevenson novel, uh, which is very long. Um, yeah, and I just kind of like went into a Reemde audiobook nap for six hours. Like my body kind of hibernated because it was very physically uncomfortable. And you know, it, it was okay. It got me through, you know what would have been a very long bus ride, just you know, allowed mm-hmm. me to sort of nap and drift and listen to a very entertaining uh, book. So I love that about Justin's. Uh, I love that about his account of summer reading.
2: My, uh, my analog is, uh, I once decided it was going to be a really good idea to take the Amtrak train from Oceanside, California, where I had just done a triathlon, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, all the way back to Portland. That's a long uh, is, way. Yeah, it is a 33-hour uh, Amtrak train. You, you sort of leave at around 8 or 10 in the morning on one day, Jeez. and you arrive in Portland Kind of in like the middle, late afternoon, early evening, the following day, wow. And um, I didn't have a sleeper mm. berth because uh, you know, non American readers, it's insanely expensive it's in the expensive. U.S. for berth on an Amtrak. Uh, and my seatmate, um, was among a group of five or six people who drank so much that they eventually were forced off the train in Eugene. Uh, which is hilarious. They made it like 31 hours of a 33-hour train ride and then were evicted from the train. So close. Uh, He ended up uh, in a romantic entanglement with someone, and so I could not go back to my seat. Uh, So I spent almost the entire trip in the observation deck reading Ruki Murakami's 1Q84.
1: I love that Uh, book
2: which is an odd book, but it was the perfect context for reading this strange, massive, very readable, um, surrealistic novel. And it was great. I sort of left California in like late March, early April. It was like beautiful, sunny sideways, like late, uh, like early spring sunlight in Redding, California. And when the sun came up and we were in Klamath Falls, it was like the dead of winter. Mm. There was like snow falling and it looked like the North Pole. And it really was this like absolutely strange trip. Uh, But you're right. Like a good book will make a otherwise untenable travel situation way more tenable.
1: And it's, you know, like taking a train from Tokyo to the coast, like over the mountains that could have very well have been snowy, you know, to visit. Mm -hmm. I think he had a relative in, in, Care or something like that. Uh, I also have a very specific memory associated with that book in the summer too. Although I think I'll hold off on sharing it. We might read that book one day. I definitely feel like that book. If 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 Upper Middle Brow continues, it's hard for me to imagine us not eventually getting to one Q eighty four.
2: Yeah, or at least like a a, a long dip in Murakami. Yeah, I think he's too he's too like absolutely right on the nose. Upper
1: <laughs> He is exactly, he is exactly <laughs> what we're doing. Um, yeah. Do you want to hear our, our uh, next one? Yeah, let's do it. This is from Lulu Miller of uh, uh, Radio great. Lab and Terrestrials, um, and I'll just go ahead and play. This was the last one we got. I had to kind of wheedle a little bit, but I uh, she sent it to me this morning. So uh, here we go. What's up, boys? Um, all
0: right, I'm here with your your. Uh... Fresh off the press's summer reading recommendations. Um, okay, so things I like to read in the summer are a little fun, a little popcorny, bubblegummy, slide the slide, ride the ride. Uh, yeah, and I I'm going to recommend a quick trio trio of books um, that all center around the theme of interspecies love, interspecies trysts. Emotional relationships uh, Number one, Bear By Marion Engel Probably my favorite novella Alive, that, that, uh, alive It feels alive, that is um, It was written in the 70s By a Canadian author uh, And it was simultaneously like Banned And it won an equivalent Of the Pulitzer in Canada The General something award uh, It's great so it's a lusty little read uh, about a mousy archivist who gets an assignment to archive an island, uh, a man who's passed away his estate, and she finds among his possessions a bear. And they are the, the only beings on that island, and uh, things transpire. Number two, Mrs. Caliban. I think this one might also be 70s, maybe it's 60s. I should have looked it up. You know, people have said the shape of water is sort of ripped off of it. Not based on it, but like ripped off. I don't know. I think there can be multiple stories of women falling in love with frog-like, fish-like science experiments that, that get out. Um, but check that one out. Uh, and then finally, a book called Pisces. Uh, by bye, bye, bye. These would be good things to look up. By Melissa Broder, which is a very little naughty, naughty story about a woman and a merman, uh, who she kind of drags ashore in like a wheelbarrow. And anyway, they're just fun. They're basically romance novels, but like with a literary wink. They're they're really well done. Um, they're naughty. They're strange. They're eerie. Um, I think what appeals to me about interspecies stuff is like partially the fun of it. Like I, I uh but I, I think I think they're often metaphorical, um for a kind of queerness for just jumping out of the rules of things. I'm not here to advocate bestiality, but I am here to get to like read about animals and think about other minds and how that might work in love and to see characters who are so kind of like Dismayed by humanity, how humanity can take a toll on them that they, they, they reach for a love that, and like a kind of mind, um, that's really beyond a norm. And, and I don't know, for me, I think that's always like a reminder that you can reach outside rules. And so there's like a thrill, there's a chuckle, uh, and they are, they are all strange and they are all quick reads. So there you go. Bear by Marion Engel, Pisces by Melissa Broder, and Mrs. Caliban by um, Rachel Ingalls. Have fun. Farewell. Have a great summer.
2: That was Lulu. My favorite part of that is the is the farewell. Have a great summer. As if like like Lulu is just is like departing on like a like a voyage. Yeah, <laughs> like never to be seen for the rest of the summer uh, while she's off reading uh, stories of inter- interspecies love. I,
1: you know, one of the things I have noticed that there is definitely a substantial percentage or portion of readers who want something steamy during the summer like this. This, you know, based on our last episode, this is clearly a thing. This is part of summer reading for some people involves mm-hmm. romance and maybe sex. Mm hmm.
2: Yeah, totally. You know what? What Lulu's, what what her, uh, what her section there just makes me think of is like, you know, we've been talking a lot about speculative fiction, and what she's saying, you know, like I'm not into bestiality, but like, I think it's interesting to ask these questions yeah. about, like, it's another what if question. It's like speculative fiction comes to the romance novel, like what if, like we didn't like stick to our, like our own speciation in terms of uh, romance. And I think that's something that's a really clever um, thing to notice or to point out.
1: You know, I don't know that these would be summer reads for me, you know, that they, they might be more like winter reads. I trust Lulu and uh, I think I have a certain amount of squeamishness around this, topic. And, you know, we remember the summer camp where we used to work. You remember the barn climb uh, sort of map of comfort creative of creative challenge and comfort yes
2: right yes yes i I refer to the yo-yo panico zone with like alarming regularity in my professional life
1: right and so the idea here is that we all have a comfort zone where we're safe in it could be with reading it could be with something athletic it could be with something professional it could be with a relationship that but we don't tend to grow if we stay in that zone and then Mm -hmm. there's a sort of creative challenge zone outside of that that's hard and it's uncomfortable but that we sort of need to enter into that to grow grow and then we'll probably want to rest and recover by coming back into the comfort zone and then there's also the yo-yo panico zone which just not fun and we probably don't want to get into it but we are going to get into it sometimes and it's best to be prepared for that and you know sort of try to figure out how we're going to get back into that creative challenge zone again and you know i do feel like These books are sort of they sound like creative challenge books for me. Like, I feel like I would have a little bit of squeamishness around them, but they would have the kind of effect that you're talking about as a kind of a kind of romantic, sociological, emotional thought experiment. That's actually pretty important. Um, Mm -hmm. I will also say, though, this voice memo actually made me come up instantly with another Uh, upper middle brow pop quiz for you. Um, so you ready? Um, what author published a novel in the 1970s that features interspecies sex as an important plot and a way for different species in a kind of sci-fi alien context to cement kind of like diplomatic alliances. And I I have, uh, ah! (laughs) you didn't even need the multiple choice.
2: <laughs> yes. This is very funny because as we were listening to Lulu's uh piece, I was like, doesn't Larry Niven have an inner species like yeah. short story or something? In, in Ring World, the
1: um the you know ring world is this enormous planet that is as big as a solar system just about and there are you know thousands if not millions of different species that um are not generally speaking sexually compatible um but they are many of them are sort of humanoid and so one of the Uh, sort of rituals on this world when you're sort of cementing uh, or making an alliance with another sort of group um, is to do something called Rishathra, which which is somebody from your group and somebody from their group gets it on. And that sort of seals the deal, you know, of your uh, diplomatic encounter. Um, So once again... Larry Niven is with
2: us. I can uh, I can extend this. Uh, I won't make this a quiz or anything like that. Um, but uh, Larry Niven has a very funny short story called "Man of Steel, Woman of Kleenex," mm. uh, which imagines the uh, very real interspecies problem of Superman and Lois Lane. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, like I, I won't I won't you know we're we're mostly I mean we're somewhat explicit. We say swears and things like that. We don't yeah. need to get into the core of it but i will just say that if all of superman's uh, biological processes have the same sort of power and superchargedness of the rest of what he does sex with lois lane is going to be a real problem for her
1: yes yes indeed it would be um (laughs) well maybe we uh maybe we'll leave it at that um I, was, I actually wanted, before we move on to other voicemails, to ask you, this is the question we asked our two guests last time, and Lulu sort of spoke to it. I think Justin sort of spoke to it, which is, is summer reading kind of relevant to you as a concept? Um, do you read differently in the summer than other times of the year?
2: Huh. Um, You know, it's, it's funny. I'm, I'm sure this was different when I was a teacher still. Um, and would sort of have a summer off Um, but like you know when you're an English teacher your whole life kind of revolves around reading Um, I think I think yeah I think they I think my reading does change in the summertime I think I do trend a little bit more towards lighter things Um, my reading my, my book that I put that I picked is probably sort of like literary light I might say um, and that, that is sort of where I end up a little bit more often when I'm reading in the summertime um, but yeah I mean like ideally there's a little more travel in the summer there's a little more lazy time um, and uh, I always spend a couple of weeks in Maine um, seeing my family um, and that's when I read Norwegian wood last summer which you know is maybe not a lighter book but is uh, Yeah, a very readable book for for the summertime.
1: Yeah, I think that I don't really tend to have the summers off. Um, I do tend to read differently while I'm traveling. And I do tend to travel more in the summer. And I think that when I'm traveling, I do want a lighter, more entertaining book. Maybe, you know, sort of for the reasons I was explaining. Or You know, sometimes you're under a little bit of stress or you don't quite feel at home. And so something, having a book that quickly becomes comforting and sort of gives you the sense of like oh i'm going to return to these characters that i've gotten to know i i like and i also i think i like long books in the summer for that same reason too because i like the sense of settling into the book and once i've gotten to know the characters of really being able to spend some deep time with them too Mm. and i um I remember reading Infinite Jest the first summer that uh, I worked in Maine and, you know, going off on these seven day trips and coming back and then sort of like my wacky friends, you know, at the Tennis Academy and, you know, throughout Boston were kind of like there waiting for me. (laughs) Um, And So I do do like that. And then I love when I'm traveling to have books that somehow resonate with the way I'm traveling. So like your experience of Mm -hmm. being on the train and reading 1Q84 or a few summers ago, I read... Where the crawdad sings while I was, you know, sort of driving and then in North Carolina on the coast in a similar landscape. Or I drove through Mexico and read uh, La Lacuna by Barbara Kingsolver, you know, and which is describing these things happening in Mexico and also somebody who is going from Mexico to the United States and passing between those spaces and observing sort of what's different about those places. And I do like that a lot in the, in, mm-hmm. in, so yeah, I don't know if I really have summer reads, but I do seem to have travel reads and I do travel yeah. more in the summer. So maybe that is close enough.
2: I think Infinite Jest is really reward something like that. Like you need you need to be a captive somewhere. Like you need to be stuck on a plane or in like a, like a car or a bus or a van or a boat. Um, you really need to think, oh, this book is hard. But there's literally nothing else for me to do uh and and once and you need that for the first like, like 100, 100 pages. to 200 yeah, pages yeah. Yeah. yeah i feel like,
1: like yeah it, it's like that at first and then once you once you start revisiting the characters and you figure out who they are and sort of where the plot points are going then it sort of pulls you along but yeah i agree with that too and i think i had actually started it elsewhere i had started it i remember reading it as a bus driver uh, in Mm. Charlottesville. Um, and which was the job I did right until that summer. Um, and Mm. I can even remember being in a particular place. And I think the first moment the book started pulling me along was a moment in one of the AA meetings where there is an Irish guy in recovery. And he starts talking about like, he's had sort of liquid bowel movements for the last year he's been, but at some point in his recovery, he recovers enough that one day he looks in the toilet and by God, he sees a tarred An actual solid tart in the toilet. And then the whole thing is written in sort of, you know, dialectic Irish Boston accent. And I remember that moment where I was like, I I think I'm enjoying this now, which is sort of unfortunate because it's a little bit of an ethnic joke and definitely some potty humor. But oh, well, you know, that's that's what brought me in.
2: Anything, anything to get you there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Ready for some more voicemails? Let's do it. Okay. this is from my friend and former colleague at WBEZ.
5: Hello, my name is Shannon Heffernan, and I'm recommending In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado. I don't really listen to books that often. It's just not how my attention span works. But, but this one I listened to um, on audiobook when I was making this long drive by myself, and the book put me into an absolute, trance. The writing is uh, so clear and intimate. It feels like the author is talking right to you. Um, It's a book about uh, domestic violence in a queer relationship, but it's really about so much more than that. It's about how we tell stories to ourselves and others, what gets remembered, whose memories um, are solidified, and I, I think it's uh, just a very smart and beautiful book. Uh, each chapter is told using like a different narrative con- convention. Uh, like one is a choose your own adventure chapter, for example. And I think it's the kind of thing that if it were not in the hands of such a talented writer, could feel like a gimmick. But it ends up being such an important part of how you understand what she's trying to say to you and um and i love it and i love it and i think everybody should read it so um enjoy your summer read of in dream house
1: i love the idea of a choose your own adventure chapter Mm -hmm. there's definitely some of the you know um jennifer egan type experimenting going on there it sounds like
2: uh, of, it, it reminds me, I don't know where I was reading this. Uh, no, this is in the podcast I'm presently obsessed with, um, the 60 songs that mm-hmm. uh, explain the 90s. Um, uh, Rob Harvilla, the host, talks about the, the use of second person in thongs. And this is something that you and I have talked about a bunch, too, about the use yeah. of second person. Uh, he does refer to um, Jay McInerney's uh, second person. Uh, he, he sort of savages it in, uh, in a pretty quick throwaway, sort of like, like a 1980s overwritten hipster novel, uh, Jay McInerney's Bright Lights, Big City, um, but talks about the fact that uh, you, without the second person, you can't have choose your own adventure books. <laughs> I was like, "Oh my god, what That's a true. great observation!" It's like the stalwart of the form is uh, is the second person.
1: There's also a lot of uh, second person in tabletop uh, role playing games as well.
2: Yes, yeah, yeah, um, yes. You walk into the dungeon. Right. It sounds like dripping. <laughs> I don't know, ichor.
1: <laughs> oh, indeed. Is it a is it a slime jelly? Uh, <laughs> It's gotta be a
2: 12 cube.
1: Uh, Yeah, I also love the way in which a certain kind of book can really be company on a long road trip when you're driving Mm -hmm. alone, you know, and how how it can start to feel like it's talking to you, and you're in this very immersive experience. And I've actually gotten to the point where I listen to more books than i than I read on page um, nowadays. And partly that's to do with my habits and and other things. But uh, yeah, I definitely relate to that. I'm gonna play another one
6: hi jesse and chris it is leah jones from finding favorites podcast here with two summer reading recommendations for you the first is not new but i will never stop recommending it as the perfect summer series and that is the thursday next series by jasper ford jasper creates the most amazing worlds Every time he sets out to create a new world, it is phenomenal. And in the Thursday Next series, we follow a book world detective who goes in and out of book world and our, you know, our our current world, investigating things that have happened in manuscripts, crimes that are happening in book world. And it explores what is life like for characters of fiction books when they are not being read. Um, so I will always recommend the books, the Thursday next series, start with the air affair. If you are a lifelong reader, you will be delighted by what Jasper has, is bringing to the forefront. The other one is a book that I am looking forward to reading. I have it next, the next audiobook I'm going to listen to. And that is Abraham Josie Reisman has written a book called Ringmaster, about Vince McMahon and the unmaking of America. Um, I think I talked to Chris about it. How Josie has coined the phrase neo kayfabe and I am so excited to dig into this this book. I'm talking to Josie this weekend for Finding Favorites, and um, I'm so excited. I wish I had time to finish reading it before our interview this weekend. Um, I hope you are well and getting ready for a fun summer.
1: You know, the um, I feel like Ringmaster, you know, a number of people have said they don't read as much nonfiction over the summer. You know, you're looking for something light. Maybe you're looking for something Mm. escapist. I feel like Ringmaster would be a great summer read for me. You, You know, like it's the kind of nonfiction book that still sort of pulls sounds like it would pull you along as much as a great novel. And I'm, you know, I'm mildly obsessed with professional wrestling. And I do think, you know, there's Vince McMahon sort of playing with what is real and what is not this notion of Neo kayfabe and, you know, certain politicians and, and reality TV stars. There's a lot going on. That's worth sort of unpacking and the way that people seem to be able to kind of play with that space between, reality fiction in a way that sort of allows people to build celebrity and power and also escape consequences in many respects because maybe everything is a little bit of a game
2: Mm -hmm. I mean yeah I mean I mean one thing that I think is funny is that you know kayfabe as a term isn't really that old and but the fact that it's got such a a depth of like market penetration that we need neo kayfabe to explain something else that's going on in america um is a real a real sign that like as weird a term as that is um and and sort of it's like such an odd portmanteau um that we need a new version of it to explain you know um, like america um but i think you're right like i mean can't you imagine i mean you can imagine the plot ideas of like the great gatsby superimposed over professional wrestling like the same ideas about nostalgia and loss and image and pretend and fakery um you just got to think about the books in gatsby's library where he hasn't even cut the pages like he's so not invested in the illusion um the real depth of the illusion in the same way that like. Nobody really thinks that it's real in right. professional wrestling, right? But what's important is the uh, the depth of the depth of the illusion that the illusion seems like it could be real, which is so which is such a strange inversion of of illusion.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I, it's interesting, both of Leah's picks have to do with playing between the difference between the real and the imagined, too, right? Like, you have uh, Jasper Ford is writing these books where the characters, you know, have a life beyond the the book, which is, I'm even, <laughs> I'm hard, I'm, I'm having a hard time even imagining that as a narrative convention. Like, how do you even, how is it even written? But I certainly think that anyone who's tried to write will appreciate the the power of the metaphor there right of characters who aren't doing what the writer wants them to. you know you want to tell this like tight little story and you want certain things to happen and you're reaching for certain symbolism and the characters seem to have other ideas uh, I think that's a real experience that many writers have and you know I don't know that Jasper Ford's the only person to literalize that I, it's you know it's it's something that happens from time to time but those books sound exciting too I think maybe my mom was reading one of them well, should we do our recommendations?
2: Yeah. So, I'm recommending um Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. Mm. Um this is uh, not going to be any kind of groundbreaking uh recommendation nor will it showcase Zevin to anyone new. I think she's uh you yeah, know, this is, this book was a hit, uh but um I'm about halfway through, and it reads real easy, um, but it's still a good literary work. I think it's uh, it's a real it's a very strong possibility for a future upper middle brow uh, uh, read. But um, yeah, I wanted to read this section. Uh, this is about three medium paragraphs. It'll probably take me about a minute or so to read. But uh, this is from the very first chapter. One of our protagonists, Sam Mather, um has, uh, he is a, at this point, I believe he is a sophomore or a junior at uh, Harvard University, um, and in the red line station in Harvard Square, he sees his childhood friend, Sadie Green, uh, who he's been estranged from for a few years, um, but uh, yeah, here we go. He was about to call her name, but then he didn't. He felt overwhelmed by how much time had passed since he and sadie had last been alone together how could a person still be as young as he objectively knew himself to be and have had so much time pass and why was it suddenly so easy to forget that he despised her time sam thought was a mystery but with a second's reflection he thought better of such sentiment time was mathematically explicable it was the heart The part of the brain represented by the heart that was the mystery. Sadie finished staring at whatever the crowd was staring at and now she was walking toward the inbound red line train. Sam called her name. Sadie! In addition to the rumble of the incoming train, the station was roaring with the usual humanity. A teenage girl played penguin cafe orchestra on a cello for tips. A man with a clipboard asked passers by if they could spare a moment for Muslim refugees in srebrenica Adjacent to Sadie was a sand selling six dollar fruit shake. The blender had begun to whir, diffusing the scent of citrus and strawberries through the musty subterranean air, just as Sam had first called her name. Sadie Green, he called out again. Still she didn't hear him. He quickened his pace as much as he could. When he walked quickly, he counterintuitively felt like a person in a three legged race. Thady! Thady! He felt foolish. Thady Miranda Green, you have died of dysentery!
1: And scene. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it goes it goes from there. He does get her attention with that. I will say that that is the key that unlocks the uh, that her attention, uh, which I you know, for for people in your my generation, the phrase you have died of dysentery will instantly, if we have had the experience of playing Oregon Trail, transport us back to those particular moments. I played them on an Apple Two GS, the old green and black um, version. Same here. Um, yeah, I missed the sort of next iteration of, of the Oregon Trail, the kind of uh, more more lavishly done color versions um, on like a VGA or a EGA monitor. Um, but uh, I just think that this that, that passage like there's this little section like he, she manages to muse about time and then emotions, the difference between thought and feeling that is, you know, runs through all of literature. Um, Nice little scene setting of like the rest of the world kind of going on around the action of your novel, um, and then like a moment that like really crystallizes what this book is going to be about. Like, oh, this is a relationship that is founded on you know computer games, um, and I just thought like such an efficient and effective way of doing character development and scene and setting development.
1: How early in the book is that is that scene? Oh, that-
2: we are we are we are on page five okay but the book starts on page three you know this is this is very very early i was thinking about reading the opening paragraph because it's also a killer in terms of uh of of letting us know where we are but that passage i read i thought was better and gives me a chance to talk about oregon trail
1: yeah we played it on apple 2gs but i remember i think we had whatever graphics they had Natari atari that, our Apple II GS had that kind of graphic card, so it was full color, but very blocky. And so I'm curious, do we know up to that point that the, have we met Sadie, and do we know that Sadie might have, you know, gone to school with this character, or is that scene how we learn that or gather that?
2: You're gathering all of that in these first few pages. Mm. Um, and uh, And she does a really good job of, like, getting us there on the hurry up.
1: The moment that grabs me, I mean, obviously the ending line is wonderful, but the moment that I went from like, oh, this could be any book to like, ooh, I think I do want to read this was the thinking about time being funny and then being like, no, it's not time, it's me. Time is always time. It, it is something about yeah. me changing. And what that says about, you know, we learn in that moment that this protagonist is thoughtful, is, in you know, a sort of introspective, introverted, precise, all of mm-hmm. these things. It's the sort of thought I would have, or at least I relate to as well. And it, it also suggests a kind of, you know, neurotic, mildly neurotic character. Too. Like, yeah. you know, why does it really matter whether it's time or the heart, but um, I I found that moment super compelling. Where's the city that it's happening in?
2: Uh, Boston. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, okay. We're, in, we're in Boston. Uh, yeah, good good literary stomping grounds.
1: Yeah, yeah. A lot of mass whole content on this episode. <laughs> we also, we have Justin, we have Lulu, we have you, we had the yeah. 2004 World Series. Uh, so my recommendation, my recommenda- I was going to go with something else, but after seeing the uh, Steven Scosch interview, it snapped me out of my original pick, and I wanted to do- go with something about baseball. So I am recommending The Art of Fielding by Chad Harbach. Great, You're giving me the thumbs up. It's a great baseball novel. You know it. I think also the other thing it kind of reminded me of, and you and I have chatted about this, is thinking back on it, it has a lot of that same feel if you've read Infinite Jest, the moments with, you know, Hal and Kendenza and Mike Pemulus in the Tennis Academy. It has a similar feel. This idea of baseball as a, um, a baseball team as a family. Um, mm. Quick plot recap from memory. It's been a few years, but um, we meet Henry Scrimshander uh, That's right. Somewhere, talk about great names. Somewhere in uh, rural Wisconsin, he is a talented but uh baseball player but not necessarily being scouted because he's a little bit shrimpy and not a great hitter but he's a he's a really good fielder and he has read this book called The Art of Fielding. Um and a catcher from a college that's on the coast of Lake Michigan in Wisconsin, a small college, um sees him and sort of recruits him to come to the college on a baseball scholarship. And um, Three years go by pretty quickly. Henry, I think it's Henry Scrimshander, bulks up and he put he, he kind of goes from an Aussie Smith to a Cal Ripken. Like he becomes a kind of good hitting shortstop. Um, but then something happens and he gets a mental block. Um, mm. And it's an interesting mental block. Uh, he can't throw the ball to first anymore. Um, and there's some other characters. There's something of a love triangle or a love quadrangle. There's another subplot involving a uh, sort of discovery of gay identity among one of the characters Um, There is some interage relationships, sort of old to young stuff happening, too. And so you have all the joy of and the kind of intellectual joy of baseball team as a family. And then you have all the dysfunction of baseball team as family. And also, by the way, small college as family, too, which Mm -hmm. isn't something I know about. Uh, A lot of great Midwestern content. Um, I think it's a great book. I think it's up there with the natural with like shoeless Joe um, and it's also pretty long. So it's a good, you know, soak into the summer read too. And that's what uh, seeing Steven scotch up on the uh, pitchers mound cracking wise. He's, he's a little bit, uh, I'll yeah. just say this again, Steven scotch is a little more of a meathead than Mike Schwartz, but I think those guys would have gotten along. Uh, so yeah, that is my recommendation.
2: It's a great book. It's been, it's been a while since I've read it. I think it's been maybe about a decade, um, I, I don't I don't remember the plot particulars of it but I remember the emotional size of it being yeah. very uh, significant yeah um, and uh, yeah I really I, I really remember something about a betrayal and then uh, yeah you you bringing up the fact that like it's a uh, he he really becomes unable to do an important part of his job um, and uh, yeah it made me really think um, Sort of wistfully for poor old Chuck Knoblock, who mm, uh, you know, right. like uh, even you know, it's hard, hard, hard as a Red Sox fan, but he wasn't always a Yankee. He had a he had a big chunk of time, I think, with yeah. the Twins.
1: Twins, right? Um, I think of him as a Minnesota Twin.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I do too. But the 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 wild inability to get the ball anywhere near first first uh, first base was just an absolutely astonishing development for a player of that caliber
1: and it's not i mean there you know you can read about mental blocks it's a thing that happens um, and you know i assume the culture of baseball is not all that great at providing the kind of support and help <laughs> that a ball player would need in that you know suck it up <laughs> you know like totally i don't imagine i mean we talk about baseball being the intellectual sport i mean it all it, you know as i'm thinking about it one of the sort of great Often told, but never well-told stories, in my opinion, is that of Mark Fidrich. Another mass hole uh, from, uh, where was he? Westboro. Um, Or not, was he from Westboro? He was from not so very far away from you.
2: Um, Maybe from Eastboro, is that a thing? There's no Eastboro. There's a Northboro, a Southboro, and a Marlboro, along with Westboro.
1: Let's figure out where Mark Fidrich, Mark. Um, But he was a ball player who had an injury that now would be diagnosed and treated and he would have had a, you know, great, likely had a great career. He died in Northborough and he's, he was born in Worcester.
2: Uh,
3: What's that?
1: And he went to Algonquin regional high school in Northborough. God West
3: damn
2: State. it. <laughs> I hate those full. <laughs> yeah. oh Yeah. Oh, the Algon- yeah. They're our biggest rivals. Um, yeah. Algonquin high.
1: Well, I Mark Fidrich seems like he was a good dude, and his story's pretty tragic, I think. And it, it's uh, it's always sort of told us this like quirky sort of you know rookie of the year story. But he died mm-hmm. in his fifties. Um, he was farming in Northborough, and a tractor rolled on him. And um, oh, no. and uh, yeah. Anyway, um, all of that to say though, if you want to immerse in you know, summer. Midwestern small town small college baseball with big emotions, big feelings, The Art of Fielding by Chad Harbach, who also went nice. to UVA. Another wow. connection.
2: <laughs> yeah, a lot of UVA, a lot of Massachusetts today. Interesting.
1: Yeah, I've got so I got a text um hang on, I'm going to call it up because I didn't write it down. Um okay, um scrolling, scrolling. Uh, This is from longtime listener, zero-eth-time caller, uh, Tom Ryder, who didn't want to use his voice, but did say I could attribute this to him. So he says, I don't read as much as I used to, but the 2015 book by Adrian Tchaikovsky, Children of Time, is simply mind-blowing. Lots of cool spider stuff. From the deep past, I'm still in awe of the works of Stanislaw Lem. I absolutely fell in love with his recurring character, Ijon Tishi, I'm guessing. I don't know Ijon Tishi. I don't know. Stanislaw Lem is Polish, so I don't know how you pronounce that name. I apologize. Ejan Tishi it looks like. Writing behind the curtain in the 40s through 70s, Poland, Lem was mostly unknown. Now he's mostly forgotten. His collection of stories translated from the Polish called The Star Diaries predated The Hitchhiker's Guide by two decades but share the same level of sci-fi snark. Hmm. Which sounds amazing like you know 1950s polish sci-fi as snarky as Douglas Adams uh, yeah um and you know I mean Solaris is fairly well known um and mm-hmm. I I've read some of um I think I read the siberiad have you read any limb
2: I know the name like I, I think probably to people who hang out in books that name is familiar if not like, have an experience with like i definitely have seen that name before but i'm not familiar with the work
1: his um the 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 siberia sort of feels like um r2d2 and c-3po having adventures together like 20 years before star wars it's kind of got that but maybe with a little more philosophy to it uh, a little less just like let's entertain the kids and walk around but so yeah that's uh, two great recommendations uh from tom Ryder. thanks Thanks for that. And I've got one more voicemail to play us. Awesome. All right, so i got to do the screen share again. Yeah, hey, uh, this, is, this is Owen. Um, I uh, work in entertainment. I uh, live in Southern California. And, uh, yeah, I want to recommend a book for your summer reading series. Um, yeah, in the summer, it gets kind of hot here. So I like to think about, you know, cold places in the summer and uh snow-covered mountains and one of my favorite books like that is the snow leopard by peter Matheson. Uh it was written in the 1970s and it, it's a travel book he goes up into the himalayas with a with a scientist and they're studying some sheep and kind of trying to spot the snow leopard which which uh, people don't see very often up there and so kind of a fun adventure but you know it's also kind of a heavy book too because he's dealing with some grief and loss and so he's kind of dealing with that and thinking about that and up there in the, the cold snowy mountains and I, I just i love the writing and i don't know it's strange i guess but i like to think about cold places in the summer so yeah the snow leopard by peter matthewson and uh yeah keep it up i love what you're doing with upper middle brow hope your readers or your listeners enjoy that book
2: that uh yeah i can't i can't really place that voice something, I i've heard it something somewhere familiar before. about
1: that voice huh something yeah
2: familiar about it yeah yeah, I think uh, was, yeah.
1: first yeah, name thing. only owen from southern california um but yeah sounds i've never read the snow leopard sounds like a good book.
2: I, nor have i i only know it as a uh, as like a, a, a north face sleeping bag uh product
1: right or uh, was it was was there a version of the apple os that was snow leopard too
2: you, yes, 100%. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think so i much
1: remember you go that go through box. and like,
2: yeah, it's like there's like a lot of islands, but you're right. Snow Leopard, that was an operating system for, for Mac. Um, I feel like this. I, I,
1: Yeah, I I don't remember when, but I feel like the Snow... I haven't read The Snow Leopard, but it feels like the kind of book that, like, writers don't get book deals to write anymore. You know, it's like, (laughs) yeah, I'm going to go up into the Himalayas with a scientist. We're going to look for a snow leopard. I'm going to kind of write about my uh, dead wife a little bit. There's going to be some, like, references to throw. It'll be great, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah, like, can you imagine, like, the pitch for, like, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance these days? Right. You know, like... Like if it's not, if it's not like wild, you know, I mean, cause I guess wild wild is sort of like a modern day equivalent of sound of the art of motorcycle maintenance. Um, but, uh, yeah, I can't really imagine a pitch for the snow leopard where like these, these kind of like vague and open ended projects, um, that, that unfortunately can like sometimes really turn into something quite amazing. Right.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, actually, now that I think about it, our friend Lulu, who left us a voicemail, her recent book, um, Why Fish Don't Exist, is maybe the kind of closest modern equivalent. And she's got a hook, which is, hey, there's no such thing as a fish. Fish don't exist. You know, like there is a kind of scientific hook, but it is also similarly a mix of memoir, of science writing, of kind of existential uh, questing uh, mm. of history, of narrative Um, so that's one I would also recommend listeners. And I think that would be a great read at the beach. Thank you, Lulu. Um, but it, it is. Um, yeah, I don't feel like we get quite as many of those books as we used to anymore. Um, and maybe maybe I have a little nostalgia for that.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, you know, it's a it's a it's an unfortunate aspect of our culture that like we are awash these days in so much content that of course editors and people who sort of stand at the gates of of the publishing world, like they like have to, like the gates have gotten taller. Um, And at the same time, this sort of weird, like everything has gotten more, like there's just more words out there all the time. uh, Generate, you know, now there's just, now there's computer learning that is generating words all the time. Um, And so it's, 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 yeah, yeah, totally. It's a bummer. Um, and then at the same time, I'm sure that we will get some gems of this particular era. You know, it's sort of like the, um, you know, if there are infinite number of monkeys at infinite typewriters, eventually Hamlet gets produced. I mean, you could kind of think about our particular moment as like infinite monkeys at infinite typewriters
1: or um, but- like hundreds or thousands of talented people who are struggling to make a living trying to write. A novel or a book on their mornings and weekends you know if you, enough people doing that some will squeeze out a a great book that makes An it through the System.
2: or something like right. that yeah. An artist,
1: which which took nine years to write
2: do you know the playwright david ives
1: yes yes
2: yeah uh, do you know the short play in which there are three monkeys that are in fact trying to write hamlet
1: I think so. Is that the is that yeah. this, the the one act the book of one act plays? Yeah.
2: Yes. Right, yeah. and they keep yeah. getting the,
1: notes from their from their editor,
2: and the, the 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 play ends with one of them, almost writing, the beginning of Paradise Lost. Right. Right. Something like, "Of man's first disobedient, and the fruit of that immortal tree, which brought death into the blamagam, bed socks knockworth tinkerbell." Yeah, <laughs> he just like completely goes off the rails. Um, uh, some, um,
1: which... I was actually thinking about the odds of that and how many monkeys you would need the other day, and my brain started to hurt. Um, <laughs> Compound. <laughs> there, I believe, also is a moment in the Hitchhiker's yeah. Guide to the Galaxy where they open up a closet, and in the other side of the in the closet are an infinite number of monkeys typing on an infinite number of typewriters, <laughs> and and there's actually a I think a similar joke to the David Ives, uh, yeah. to the, the David Ives play.
2: Totally. Yeah. Um, well, I've got this poem All uh, right. that I think uh, speaks to some baseball stuff, um, and it's uh, it's a good one. It's a short poem. Um, I'd forgotten this poet's name uh, because it's a pretty like milk toasty name. Uh, just just Robert Francis. Um, it's a pretty basic. <laughs> it's uh, as good of a name. name as you need. Why <laughs> um, And I don't. I don't think this is an excellent poem. Um, I think there's some. Some issues with it, of of, but you know, like that's the same thing with any poem. I, I think what I love about it is is its suiting of its subject matter to the words that it, it that that the poet chooses, um, which is of course you know where you need to start for any poem. But um, it's just called pitcher. His art is eccentricity. His aim, how not to hit the mark he seems to aim at, his passion, how to avoid the obvious, his technique, how to vary the avoidance. The others throw to be comprehended. He throws to be a moment misunderstood, yet not too much, not errant, errant, wild, but every seeming aberration willed, not to, yet still, still to communicate, making the batter understand too late.
1: When I was a teenager, um, I spent a lot of my summers in Lexington, Kentucky, and we got WGN television and they would run the day baseball games of the Cubs because the Cubs didn't have lights at that point, or they got lights around that time. And so I got to see a lot of early career um, Doug Maddox pitching Mm. and that poem perfectly describes Doug Maddox pitching you know because Doug Maddox was not a power pitcher he could maybe throw a 93 mile per hour fastball but he had a brilliant changeup and a couple other things and everything he was doing was to set up the changeup. and you know he had pinpoint control and he didn't need to overpower the batters he just needed to make them think he was doing something slightly different than what He was doing so that they would ground out or, you know, pop up. Um, And that's my favorite kind of pitching. And, you know, like you can watch baseball and, you know, we have six foot seven sluggers now and six foot seven, 280 pound relief pitchers and guys who can throw 103 or 105 miles per hour. And, and um, I love the mental game of a pitcher who he, you know, he's not going to overpower the batter, batters with his fastball. You know, he has to outsmart them and he has to mm-hmm. use every while and every bit of control and he has to keep them guessing. And I love watching a game like that. My fi- And my favorite kind of baseball is when both pitchers are on and doing it and nobody's yeah. hitting, um, you yeah. know, and the game is, you know, it's like one to one in the eighth inning. You know, I love I love that about that game. love a good
2: pitcher's duel. Yeah, I love a and good pitcher's duel. It's a similar. I mean, it's a similar weird separation of of um, opponents, um, the, the the pitcher and the hitter. You know, similar to tennis, like this yeah. uh, this sort of odd separation of antagonists um, that we don't see as much of in in other sports. Yeah, um, and it's such an such an odd way of doing it. Um, that, that you're, you're really locked in this intimate battle with this other person who is, in baseball terms, 90 feet away, tennis. I don't know how long a tennis court is. I need to look that up. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's such an odd, intimate relationship that you don't see a lot of in other sports.
3: The,
1: uh, the movie For the Love of the Game dramatizes that quite well. Mm. Um, I don't know if you've seen that movie with Kevin Costner. I haven't seen that. I should, I should watch um, it. Our friend Matt Lunt recommended it to me, and I thought it was sort of not great um, at first. And he he kind of explained what was good about it, and uh, I totally see it. And part of it is that he's he's pitching uh, a very good game against some former teammates and friends. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of part of what's going on as well. So he knows these people quite intimately um, as he's trying to dominate them. And he's also late career, you know, this is kind of the last big shot you know, for, for glory and greatness. And that's always a good story. Um, yeah. I mean, I also think what I like about a pitcher's duel is that when the ball is put in play, everything becomes a much higher stakes or if somebody walks, everything becomes much higher stakes. And that's when you start seeing, you know, sacrifice bunts and, you know, maybe you know pitch outs and stolen bases and all these other things where if if you're just going to like get a lot of hits and someone's going to hit a three run homer every three innings you don't see as much of that stuff cuz statistically it's stupid you know you know right. you, you don't want to take those risks you want as many people on bases as possible but be, when runs become really precious the strategy gets really interesting and i think baseball has slowly reclaimed some of that it definitely lost it in the 90s in the steroid oh, era yeah. um but it seems to have come back a little bit and uh um I Wish it would come back more. If I was commissioner, I would deaden up the ball. And if you hit it out of the park, it's a double. No home runs. <laughs> there you go. I shouldn't say no. You can hit a home run, but you have to it has to be an inside the park home run. So you, you ah, it's nice. a base running home run.
2: <laughs> no, it would make uh, David Ortiz uh, slightly less tenable as a uh, as a prospect.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know I'm not a big fan of just big chunky DHs who can hit home. I mean, I just don't think that's very interesting. He's a good dude. Uh oh, yeah. I, I like him. Um, I, you know, you know, maybe it would have made him run a few more laps and learn to play first, first base (laughs) or something like that.
2: Yeah. 100%. I mean, like, you know, I mean the, the national league game is better. We know everybody knows that. Um, and I mean, I think you're, you're talking about like the hard scrabble nature of baseball, which is like, which is really the way that it's, it it should be played. But didn't those a-holes
1: just extend the DH rule to the national league this year too? Oh, good
2: Lord. Really?
1: I think so. I don't think oh, no. I don't think pitchers hit anymore. I could be wrong about it. That was another great thing about Greg Maddox, is that his lifetime oh, batting God. average is like 220 or something like that. You That's know,
2: amazing. Like, <laughs> That's I incredible. there is at least
1: one Greg Maddox game where he threw a shutout and then the only run the Cubs score was on his RBI.
3: Oh <laughs> at least game. one
1: game like that. <laughs> He's amazing. like literally like, do I have to
2: do everything? And the answer is <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tonight, Greg, you do. Yes,
1: you do. I guess somebody got on base so he could drive them in. But, uh,
2: yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's the you know, like, like America is addicted to bigness. You yeah. know, like uh, I did see a very funny stand-up recently about how like, like Americans don't like soccer and it's a low-scoring, and like, and they're like, look at football, it's like twenty-one to fourteen, and they're like, he's like, no, no, it's that's three, three to two. two. <laughs> and uh yeah i mean like like i I challenge anybody to like not go to a soccer match like an important soccer match that is one to nothing and like in the waning minutes the last 10 minutes of a one to nothing soccer match are are some of like you are going to see things and like see players do things and see managers do things that are like just clear signs of desperation and uh and trickery and it's just wonderful
1: and and sometimes brilliance and beauty and astounding yes well um today on inside baseball with chris and (laughs) jesse we're gonna wrap up our long conversation about baseball uh a couple jock nerds we got here um that was a great episode you want to read you want to read some credits anything else you want to say
2: no. Um, so Upper Middle Brow is a small point production. Chris Bag and Jesse Dukes are the creators and hosts.
1: Thanks to Justin Reich, Leah Jones, Lulu Miller, Shannon Heffernan, Tom Ryder, Owen from L.A., whoever that guy is, for sharing your picks. We'll compile all the recommendations we got in a blog post. And by the time you hear this, listener, it will be summer
2: music for upper middle brow is by ben pajak and jesse dukes design and website by me chris bagg and you can learn more about us at uppermiddlebrow.com you can find us on instagram at upper underscore middle underscore brow uh, and on twitter at uppermiddlepod if you would like to get in touch with us send us an email to hello at uppermiddlebrow.com awesome
1: sun is still out seven o'clock in southern california it's probably going to be out till more like 10 where chris Bag is in portland or where my friends are in maine but in the southern climates the days never get all that long but still i think the sun sets around eight thirty. Second longest day of the year uh i do love the long days um Thank you so much for listening to that episode, and I just want to say if you have not listened to the other two summer reading episodes in our series, go back and check them out. The first one from a few weeks ago, we talked to a couple of veteran English teachers, high school English teachers, about sci-fi and fantasy books that would appeal to teenagers as summer reads. It's a great conversation. We had a lot of fun. We nerded out. (laughs) We went down a lot of rabbit holes. It was really, really great. Um, and then uh, more recently, we did summer reading for adults with two guests, Ariane Nettles from Northwestern University and Susie Ahn. uh Both of them are actually former colleagues, but Susie still works at WBEZ. Uh, and they each recommended a book for summer reading. And we had some long, interesting discussion about what constitutes a good summer read, too. Uh, so that was a lot of fun as well. So please go back and check that out. And while you're checking things out, man, we could really use a couple more ratings and reviews, especially reviews. Reviews are great. Um, and it it seems like iTunes slash Apple Podcasts is the best place to leave reviews. Even if you listen to us on another app, consider logging on to Apple Podcasts or iTunes or downloading a legacy copy of iTunes 7 and that you can plug an old iPod into uh, and logging on and leaving us a review. It really, it really actually does help other people find the show. It helps with sort of placement in the iTunes charts and the podcast charts. Um, so if you're enjoying what we're doing, we could really, really use a rating and review. Thanks very much. We're so lucky to have you as a listener. And I leave you with some sounds of the early evening. The wind in the trees, the distant motors, and Some wind chimes, maybe. Can't tell if that's a dog or some kind of corvid grackle or something. Oh, there's a honeybee right there. You can't smell it, but it's there's a bunch of jasmine in bloom. Like a whole fence of jasmine, and it smells like sweet vanilla.
2: Until next time.